Aloha. Welcome to The Conversation. I'm Yanji Denise, filling in today for Catherine Cruz. Our climate is changing, and here in Hawaii, that is evident in so many ways, from shrinking shorelines to fewer trade wind days, extreme rain events, and at the same time, drought leading to fire danger on every island. The crisis can feel overwhelming, so how can we both as a community and individuals act to help? We're joined by experts to give us a reality check on what is happening and what we can all do. We want to hear from you this morning. The numbers to reach us are 808-941-3689 here on Oahu or 1-877-941-3689 on neighbor islands. It's Monday, February 5th. We pick up the conversation after the headlines. Do you love public radio? Would you like to join the team that puts your favorite HPR programs on the air? We may have the perfect job for you. HPR is hiring a full-time board operator. Audio editing and broadcasting experience are required, and skills as an on-air announcer are a plus. If this job opportunity is music to your ears, visit hawaiipublicradio.org jobs to learn more. Aloha, I'm Yanji Denise, in for Catherine Cruz, and we're talking today about climate change here in the islands. We're taking your questions and comments about what you're seeing happening in your own community and how these changes in our environment are changing the way we live. Joining us today is Dr. Chip Fletcher, Interim Dean of the School of Earth Science, Oceans and Technology at UH Manoa. His research and teaching focuses on climate change, coastal community resiliency, and natural coastal systems. He's also the former chairperson of the Honolulu Climate Change Commission. Dr. Clay Traurnicht is a professor at UH Manoa. He's here. He specializes in wildfire and ecosystem care. He focuses on improving wildland fire management in Hawaii and the Pacific. And Matthew Gonzer, Chief Resilience Officer and Executive Director at the Office of Climate Change, Sustainability and Resiliency for the City and County of Honolulu. His office is tasked with carrying out the city's climate action plan, which in part is focused on accelerating decarbonization. Gentlemen, thanks so much for being here this morning. Thank you, Yunji. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks. So this Thursday marks six months since the Maui wildfires, a grim anniversary. Now, before those fires, so much of our focus when it comes to climate change in the islands was on sea level rise and all the issues that comes with that. We are going to get to that in this hour. But first, I'd like to start with the fire danger and ask you, Dr. Fletcher, to lead us off explaining a bit about how climate change is increasing our wildfire risk here in Hawaii. Thank you, Yunji. One of the characteristics that we're experiencing here in Hawaii is increased drought. Um, We also have reduced rainfall. Now those are two separate things. Uh, Drought is a long period where there's no rainfall um, and over uh, episodes like that, um, we find soil drying out, um, we find native vegetation um, not thriving because of the lack of Uh, precipitation, but invasive vegetation um, with its hardy nature still uh, going strong. And um, the overall conditions of drying, uh, especially in the summertime, are beginning earlier in the year and extending later in the year. Uh, When we do see rainfall, it tends to be intense and short-lived, which results in most of it running off into the ocean rather than sinking into the ground. And so overall, these, uh, these trends lead to um, the replacement of native vegetation with uh, um, vegetation that will uh, act as an increased uh, source of uh, ignition uh, under drying conditions. That's, that's, that's a lot to lay out, and that is... Uh a lot to think about. Dr. Traunick, let's turn to you. We do have drought throughout the state, and as Dr. Fletcher noted, it is these two elements combined, combined the drought and the lack of rainfall. Um, what communities do you believe are most at risk when we look at our state as a whole? 
Well, the general patterns are, you know, higher risk, more frequent large fires in the leeward areas, just because it's more persistently dry. Um, and the vegetation, as Chip mentioned, does make us more vulnerable. So the influx or the spread of these grasses actually makes us far more sensitive to these periods of drought, but they also uh, increase our vulnerability to the fluctuation in rainfall. So when we get these heavy rainfall events, like we recently experienced, you get a lot of biomass growth. So it's that fluctuation. Um, and actually, if you have just longer term drying trends to where there's very, very little rainfall, your fire risk can go down because there's nothing to burn. So it's really this, uh, you know, another part of climate change is the unpredictability and increased variability in rainfall. And you get this one-two punch of heavy rainfall events followed by drought. Um, and where we're really seeing the risk that has increased over the years is, is not only climate and vegetation, but it's also this historical changes in land use. And so that really points to what we're doing and really what we're not doing uh, with the landscapes around our communities. And so the biggest areas of risk or increased risk in recent years have been where we've seen uh, abandonment of agricultural lands. And that's that's the big driver because those are the first places that fill in with the vegetation that, that Chip mentioned. And let's turn now to Matt Gonzer. You know, your focus is here on Oahu, we're talking about the state as a whole, but right here at home, we have seen fires on the leeward side of, of this island. That land is covered in a lot of the vegetation that these two gentlemen are talking about. Tell us about how your office, you know, seeks to manage this and, and what you see as, you know, how climate plays into this threat. Thank you. Certainly for our office as a coordinating role and, and, and unit within the city government, education and awareness is really important. As much as clay and chip drove home the points of the changes and where we're seeing increased risk, you could look at their fire maps and there's wildfires all over this island uh, and even for the other counties as well. And um, most of the fires and as identified both through Clay's science and the city's climate change commission report, you know, greater than 90% of those are human ignition, accidental, other, other issues, you know, you know um, cooking, uh, even someone's exhaust from their car could ignite. You know, you turn on an engine and that sparks heat and that heat could catch on any of these invasive species as well. Um, from the city side, we certainly have some jurisdictional um, ways to keep people safe, but we're not in the far reaches of the mountain landscapes. We know we need greater coordination with the state and resourcing and supporting hands on the land. Uh, to, to Clay's point, a lot of the risk is through just the historical changes in, in land use patterns as well. And something that we um, want to drive home is there, there are ways to keep neighborhoods safe. There are ways to empower households to better understand most immediately around their households or their neighborhoods. Um, and there are other great examples of those that we're doing either cultural or ecological restoration with not an intention to reduce wildfire risk, but by resurrecting Lo'i in a valley in Waianae. That in and of itself became a wildfire mitigation project. So there's so much place-based community leadership around climate change adaptation, and um, we're very excited to elevate that, share those stories, and then find more ways we can resource and partner. Chip, let's go to you on this. You know, do you expect to see more intense fires like the ones we saw on Maui? Uh, you know, uh, not perhaps not that degree to that degree, uh, but in the coming years, do we are we a fire? You know, a, a state that has a fire season, if you will, like the Western states. Well, yes. If we don't respond to this opportunity, uh, one of the messages from Lahaina is that uh, we need to pay more attention to this issue. There have been wildfires uh, for a long time in Hawaii, and they've been increasing, but it, was, it, it took a tragedy like Lahaina for all of us to realize that, that this issue has been right in front of us. We had been warned. In fact, Clay had, uh, as a co-author on a report several years ago, telling us that uh, West Maui specifically was, was a uh, potential fire hazard, and indeed that's been borne out. But, you know, out of every tragedy comes opportunity. Let's take advantage of this and let's look at these abandoned plantation lands. Let's reestablish a relationship with these lands. And the best relationship we could have uh, would be to start growing more of our own food. Everybody knows that we import most of our food and that makes us vulnerable and less resilient as a community out here uh, uh, in the middle of the Pacific. Um, 
how can we, and this is a question for the legislature and for the leaders in Hawaii, how can we make farming a viable career path? Farming historically has been a very, has had a very thin profit margin. It's very difficult to make a living as a farmer. I think it's time for government to step up with programs and subsidies uh, so that people want to return to the land, grow food, and in the process of turning these abandoned lands uh, into food producing lands, um, develop uh, a whole new career track here uh, and make the entire state of Hawaii much more resilient. You know, building on that, Senator Ron Kochi in his remarks with the opening of the legislature was talking about taking these open spaces and turning them into agricultural lands. And I was reading that 25% of all land across the state uh, is is in this space. Is, Clay, can you tell us about just how big of an area are we talking about when we think about having to make the kind of conversion that we're talking about, whether it's a lo'i or what, what Chip was just saying? You know how much how much land are we talking about? What would it take to do something like that? Well, when you look at these invasive non-native grasses, they cover about um, a million acres. So that's that twenty-five percent uh, of state land area. The benefit we have uh, working speaking towards agriculture also is that about seven hundred fifty thousand acres of that is currently under grazing, right? So that's a really clear sector where we need to build partnerships and expand the footprint of, of those operations. And, and it can be done very, very uh, strategically and needs to be done strategically to reduce fuels. But that area, that, that group of folks who have that expertise is, is gonna be uh, highly valuable in this partnership. And Chip's exactly right. I mean, farming is the most, the simplest way, it's like the most risk reduction that you'll see, um, you know, there we were not worrying about Lahaina burning down while there was sugar plantations just malk of it. And not to say that we want to go back to that, um, but since that plantation pulled out in 1999, there was a fire, large fire, pretty much every other year, in that space. So this is definitely a clear, uh, a clear lesson to learn here. Um, and there's people that have the know-how, have the knowledge, but as Chip said, it's a, it's a tough margin, a tight margin. So ranching as well has seen large uh, the shrinking footprint uh, over the past several decades. And all of these changes really, that's what's the signal or driving that increase uh, in wildfire in terms of annual area burned. You know, you talked about plantation lands, and I'm thinking about where I grew up on the Big Island there, you know, along the Hamakua Coast, there's plantation lands there too. What other areas are we uh, are we missing? What other areas do you see in the kind of, you know, Chip had said that you had sounded the alarm on Lahaina years ago. Where, where else do you see a similar risk? Well, we focused, as I said earlier, on the leeward areas just because we tend to get the, the largest uh, fires there. Um, but as Matthew pointed out, we see fires on the windward sides as well. And since anywhere you get this combination of grass and shrubs that are filling in these abandoned landscapes, uh, so it's pretty much around almost all of our communities. Uh, there's other features that we need to be thinking about in the built environment as well. So it's not just the fuels, right? It's how these communities are designed. Um, and most of them are designed not with the thought of wildfire uh, in mind, because when you had farmlands around them, it wasn't a concern, but now it is. And so I think the fact uh, something around two thirds of our communities only have one way in and one way out, right? And so that's something that's if you can fix that, the areas which you can deal with that, um, I think we also need to be thinking about benefits for other hazards as well, you know, coastal flooding and, and rainfall events like that. So there's definitely, um, the risk is high across the board, but we can use the combination of where we see high fire risk in terms of fuels, but also the built environment to try to understand where do we prioritize actions moving forward. You know, Matt, given what uh, Chip laid out about the low, um, profit margin, if you will, on turning this into farmland. Tell us a little bit about where the city's priorities are in that regard about transforming some of these lands. Is that part of your plan? And, and is that something that the city would look to support? The city, certainly through the COVID pandemic, sort of resurrected its, its interest and awareness in trying to define its role within supporting agriculture for a variety of reasons, not just on the business side, but literally for food security for people, access to food to eat. A lot of the resourcing through COVID relief was direct feeding. A lot of that is still ongoing. So you, you have this both and opportunity where we were using federal cares and then ultimately ARPA money to support the food bank to buy local food so that people could eat those local fresh 
nutritious vegetables. Um, there's been further uh, direction from the city council through the Office of Economic Revitalization to provide certain levels and different tiers of agricultural grants. Um, we're learning from the other counties' offices of economic development that have had a little bit more of a direct relationship in certain sectors like tourism and agriculture in particular. Um, we also see a great need to provide even some of that future data around what does a climate smart agricultural system look like while we're also trying to find ways to partner and support on the business side. Um, so we work very closely with our sister office, OER. Um, they're certainly on the data and on the business side while we're trying to support on the food resiliency aspects of households, additionally with the, the climate science and information about if, if we're going to meet CHIP's vision of increased ag, what does that look like in the face of increasing climate changes? Right. And when Senator Kochi sort of laid that out, you know, his point was that we have the DOE, which is what he called the largest restaurant in the state, right? That you have a, a lot of, you know, a, a market right there that you could immediately be buying up this food. Um, Chip, I want you actually to react a little bit to the news that we heard at the top of the hour coming out of Los Angeles and, and Southern California generally, these atmospheric rivers. We know that uh, you mentioned that when we do get rain, we get we can often get a lot of it and that that can be unwelcomed. Um, how do we know when we're dealing with something that is climate change versus weather? Oh, that's a great question and very difficult to answer. Um, weather is not the sort of thing that comes with a distinct climate signal all the time. Climate change creates a background condition that tends to promote the occurrence of extreme versions of weather, extreme drought, extreme rainfall. Um, hurricanes are uh, larger, wetter, with greater wind speed. It's this extreme nature to weather that is the signal of climate change. And um, the scientific version of, of um, clarifying how much of a, of a particular event is um, due to climate change is to describe the statistical average for a weather event and then the event you're interested in, what's the percent departure from that average? And what's the percent departure from one standard deviation or two standard deviations of extremeness from the average. So you, you look at the history of particular weather events and compare it to the extreme weather event and then assign some percentage of extremeness, if you will. Um, and we see uh, in California, as you mentioned, and uh, dramatic precipitation event taking place. One of the characteristics of extreme weather that we know is taking place globally is that the jet stream is becoming destabilized. The jet stream uh, is a high elevation river of winds that is typically linear and flowing with uh, high velocity. But in the last couple of decades, it has slowed down and developed large meanders. Atmospheric circulation in general has slowed. And this river, this atmospheric river that's hitting Southern California is dumping so much rain because it is moving slowly also. Why is atmospheric cir circulation slowing? Because the Arctic is warming four times faster than the rest of the globe. And so it's looking more and more tropical. I'm not saying that the Arctic is tropical yet, but the temperature gradient or the temperature difference between the tropics, which gets too much sunlight, and the Arctic, which gets too little sunlight, and therefore heat is transferred from the tropics to the Arctic through atmospheric circulation, that difference is decreased. And so the transfer of heat from the tropics has slowed, and the jet stream uh, is one of the mechanisms for uh, transferring this heat. I hope I didn't go into too much depth <laughs> there, but uh, when you slow down an atmospheric river over Southern California, you get a lot more rainfall falling on a drainage system, both a natural drainage system of streams and rivers and a human engineered drainage system um, that it's not um, designed for. 
and and Matt, we've experienced this here in Hawaii. They, I think they call them rain bombs. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and at the risk of getting a see me after class note from Chip, I'm going <laughs> to offer a slightly different um, approach, oversimplified that sometimes people might think of weather as our mood, whereas climate is really our personality. But the truth is that our personalities are changing because of all of the fuel that has been historically emitted. Climate is not a future thing. It has historically changed. We have data, we have great research and information here locally in the state around these trends of increased sea level rise, increased temperature, decrease in um, rain, decrease in trade wind days, changes in the land use patterns as well. We're experiencing it today now. You, you asked me a question about an event in 2018, right? That was a rain bomb, certainly significant for um, North Shore Kauai, but here on Oahu, it was extremely significant for certain valleys. Farms closed, they went out of business in Waimanalo. The city had major drainage infrastructure um, damage in Ainahaina and some of the drainage ways because it's not the environment for which these infrastructure systems were designed for. And we know those risks are going to increase into the future. So um, we're very excited. It's very timely for me to even be on the show because this week at City Council on Wednesday, there's Resolution 24-16, which is adoption of the city's first ever climate adaptation strategy. Um, we know more work will be, need to be um, needed to be developed for specific projects, but this really is the first time we're collecting and comprehensively articulating the strategies that we know we need to go. Because as much as climate is complex, there's only so many ways you can address these changes when there's heavy rain or when the sea is encroaching around the shoreline. So we need to find ways for community to also comprehend the same things that we're struggling with so that we can keep people safe in place, ensure protection of those environments that provide us protection, and then also think about the physical assets of city infrastructure to continue to provide services for communities all around the island. Yeah, Clay, talk a little bit about the, you know, the rain bombs that we've experienced and how that impacts. You were talking about how when we get an, a huge influx of rain and then we have all the warm weather that follows it, we get these blooms of the invasive species that we definitely don't want. You know, are we, um, we always say that we're happy to see the rain, but maybe not in, at that, to that degree, obviously. Yeah, we, we're always happy to see rain. Um, and I think everyone breathed this big sigh of relief when we got that rainfall event. I don't think it was till October um, after the Maui fires, but w everyone was kind of on pins and needles, I think, there for, for some months after that. And really what we're talking about is, yeah, the the vulnerability or sensitivity of our environment to these fluctuations, especially in rainfall, is due to those uh, the grasses primarily, but they respond really rapidly to these rainfall events. So whether it's short or long-term actually, the grasses can, you know, use that rainfall event to just increase in their biomass uh, quite rapidly. And then what you're left with is all this accumulation of fuel in the landscape. When eventually it does dry out, uh, it primes that landscape to burn. And so, again, it's this up and down kind of wet and dry cycles, which, as we're talking about, becoming less predictable. Uh, it used to be fairly easy to kind of anticipate dry seasons. Um, as they're approaching, right, this gives us some space, some lead time to be thinking about preparedness, checking your fuel breaks. But by and large, I think it's pretty easy to say that our investment sort of as a society in the actions that would really increase resilience to a fire event, for example, uh, have been pretty limited. And so when you start looking at, you know, where are we allocating resources for uh, land management in particular, I think this is a call, as Chip said, an opportunity right now to really be thinking about what do we want our landscapes to look like? When we talk about climate change addressing you know, emissions, it's quite difficult to wrap your head around that at a global scale, but locally there's all kinds of things. And I know Chip has done a ton of work on this, looking at sea level rise. Fire presents a lot of opportunities as well to just understand locally there are actions we can take. It's going to cost money, um, but what's the value, right? What is public safety worth to us? And so unfortunately when we see Maui, an event like that happen, this is sort of the ultimate kind of failure of us to anticipate what's happening and really to respond long before these events happen. You know, in the absence of turning the, you know, that million acres that we're talking about into farmland, is there something that can be done in the interim? Because, the, you know, to actually 
create the mechanisms to make that possible is pretty tough, I would think. Yeah. But can we plant something else right now? Can we do something else? I know it's a million acres, so it's a lot of work, but is there some kind of middle ground before we get to what Chip was talking about? Yeah, I think easily we can look at this kind of as a transitionary phase, and, and there's going to be sort of high-intensity actions we want to take where we are most vulnerable, like at the you know adjacent to our communities where we might want to see farmland. Maybe it's replanting that vegetation with uh, trees that are less likely to burn. It could be agroforest, food forest is a big idea that lots of people are talking about. And in the meantime, I mean, grazing is a no-brainer. Uh, it gets a lot of pushback from folks in my field in conservation because of the historical impacts it's had on, on native ecosystems. But we're talking about these areas where it's pretty much non-native um, grasses and a lot of it's high-quality forage. And so as a sort of short-term strategy, uh, it can be highly effective at knocking down those fuel loads. Firefighters will tell you um, over years and years of experience that uh, the benefits it can provide as far as responding. But it has to be done strategically. It has to be done intelligently. And we're really fortunate to have a lot of skilled grazers uh, in the state that can do this. Chip, it looked like you wanted to add to that. No, I was just not in agreement. <laughs> uh, and I'm, I'm uh, very hungry uh, for ideas from Clay because he is a state expert on this issue of wildfire. And uh, I don't often get a chance to sit in the same room with you, Clay. So <laughs> any ideas that you have on building community resiliency to, to wildfire, I'm sure we're all listening with, with keen ears. We know, too, that um, the work has to happen at many different scales. We're talking yeah. about millions of acres, big um, agricultural districts, but to the near and most proximate to people's households, there was an immediate reaction where people assumed, I need to remove all of the vegetation, right. which is not the reaction that we need for a lot of reasons. One, heat, rainfall management, all the other benefits that vegetation on private property provides us. Um, so it's really important that we think through what is the defensible space? What are, what are the species of vegetation? And there's a lot of resources out there to support actions at different scale. Yeah, I think that's a great point because it is a thing, fire risk in particular, something you can do at your household level, right? So there's a lot of programs, FireWise communities, you can reach out to, they're going to hate me for this, but Hawaii Wildfire Management Organization, give them a call. And they're organizing at the community level. So are these actions that you can take at the household level? That being said, uh, Matt's exactly right, is that some of the best practices we might adopt from the mainland where they're kind of worried about sort of crown fires running through these pine trees, ecosystems like that, we don't have the same problem. Our biggest problem are these grasses, shrubs in the understory. And so don't chop down your nice shade trees in your yard because that shade can be used as a tool to manage those grasses as and, well. And wasn't there a house in Lahaina that uh, because of the landscaping immediately around the house had reduced damage? Yeah, the folks are looking at that, and it is an example where they've seen there and elsewhere that um, you know the actions you take immediately around your household can have major benefits for uh, withstanding um, a, a, an event like that, which hopefully we won't see that scale in the future. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Yanji Denise. You can join the discussion, too, by calling us 1-877-941-3689. We want to know how climate change is affecting how you live day to day. Stay with us. We'll be right back after this break. HPR presents Kamaha'o Haumea Thronis. This concert is a part of HPR's Mele Hawaii Performance Series. Kamaha'o is performing Sunday, February 11th at 2 p.m. For tickets and more information, visit hprtickets.org. Sponsored by Farm Lovers Markets. Support for HPR comes from Waikoloa Beach Resort on the island of Hawaii, offering Kama'aina hospitality with a range of options for dining, shopping, and activities. More about rediscovering the Kohala Coast at WaikoloaBeachResort.com. 
On camera, all you see is a desolate landscape, and all you hear is wind and ice. That was the challenge for the sound designer of the film Society of the Snow. The right sound for the right picture and the right moment, everything combines, and experience, it's different. Now it's nominated for Best International Film at the Oscars. That's next time on The World. Beginning this afternoon at 1. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Yanji Denise, in for Catherine Cruz this morning. Our guest in the studio today are Dr. Chip Fletcher, Interim Dean of the School of Earth Science, Oceans, and Technology at UH Manoa. Dr. Clay Trauernicht, a professor at UH Manoa, specializing in wildland fire and ecosystem care. And Matthew Gonzer, Chief Resilience Officer and Executive Director at the Office of Climate Change, Sustainability, and Resiliency for the City and County of Honolulu. We are talking today about climate change, especially in light of the anniversary of the Maui wildfire. Six months this Thursday will we'll mark that passing. Um, I want to ask you, Chip, how do you see climate change having an impact on our daily not lives now here in Hawaii? And, and how do you expect those impacts to change over time? We spent the first half of the hour talking about wildfire risk in particular. But what else do you see about how this is impact, how we, impacting how we live day to day? Well, uh, Matt sort of ticked off the, the hot list. Um, growing heat, decreasing trade winds, decreasing trade days. Um, hurricanes around the world are shifting away from the equator, and in our sector of the world, that means that they're coming into the same latitude as the Hawaiian Islands, so that uh, hurricanes that had previously passed south of Hawaii may now intersect uh, our uh, windward sides. Uh, and we've seen an increase in the last six, seven years of tropical cyclones and hurricanes uh, compared to the previous decade. Um, sea level rise, of course, is uh, an unstoppable and accelerating reality in our lives. And we are caught with a coastal management system that is uh, working hard to catch up to this new reality, but originally designed uh, under a different assumption, an assumption that if we uh, kept some moderate distance between us and the ocean, we would be okay. But now the ocean's rising. It's going to keep rising for centuries to millennia, we are told by the latest uh, report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And uh, simply having a setback from the ocean is not enough. We need to move away. We need to move communities and roads away from the ocean. We also have, as mentioned earlier, a decrease in rainfall. And so we need to worry about how our aquifers are being recharged. Uh, are there steps we can take when it does rain to keep those waters from running into the ocean, changing um, our landscaping so that we can promote aquifer recharge with uh, these freshwater gifts from the sky that do come. And uh, longer periods of drought and um, more intense rainfall. And that's just the terrestrial side. The ocean's getting warmer. It is absorbing carbon dioxide and uh, acidifying. Our coral reefs are suffering. Um, and marine ecosystems are suffering as well. That's quite a list. Matt, when you hear that, I mean, how does the city take that on? You did mention that the city council is taking up a resolution just this week. Um, but in, in light of all of the things, and I think Dr. Fletcher could probably just give us a monologue for the full hour and we could all uh, feel, feel a lot of anxiety about it, uh, but, but how do we take that on? Climate change can feel extremely overwhelming and even abstract at times. That's why we find it very helpful to break it down into these hazards and risks because once we understand what that local impact might be to a person, to an ecological system, to some physical asset, that then empowers us to think about what we might need to be do, doing differently. That doesn't mean it's easy by any means to think about whole scale potential changes to 
environments that we've known or communities that we've known for a century or more in certain situations or major assets like ports or, or airports even. Um, but we find that it really is important to talk about the hazards because addressing a heavy rainfall is an episodic thing, right? You can keep someone safe in a location if you're thinking about elevation, floodproofing a structure, supporting them with information, timing, awareness. Heat, first and foremost, we need to stop contributing to even more climate change, but there's also ways we can address heat today and prepare ourselves for mitigation to the future. Shade it out, don't let it hit hard, um, dark surfaces, reflect it out where we can, introduce more vegetation into our communities. Not only will we be helping ourselves with heat, but it'll be a more beautiful, safer, quieter, slower environment for all of us. The kinds of things that are ingrained in the community values and policies of our community plan. So the more that we find opportunities to talk about it together like this, thank you again for the invite, um, and then help people see where there's opportunity because there's a lot that doesn't work for us today. We export billions of dollars to bring in the fuel that is causing us to even have this discussion. And that is expensive energy when we are successful with climate action, people will have cleaner, more affordable, um, renewable energy, um, we'll have cleaner, safer, more accessible transportation choices. When we are successful with climate change adaptation, we'll have cleaner, greener, more enjoyable environments that also mitigate those, those heat health risks into the future. So we break down our Climate Ready Oahu strategy into three main visions, three main parts of a vision. Prepared and empowered people safeguarded and stewarded Ina and safe and reliable infrastructure. And we really think this is a great way to start communicating it moving forward so that everyone sees opportunities for the role that government definitely has, but also opportunities and actions that households, individuals, and communities can take. Let's bring a listener into the conversation now. Larry is on the line from South Kona. Larry, go ahead. Aloha. It's a very interesting topic today, so thanks for the opportunity. Um, so I live in South Kona on the Big Island, leeward side, as you were saying. And it happens that it's ancient lava flow here with some really intense low elevation dry forest, about 1,200 foot elevation. So uh, my questions about the, today's topic are all of the forests here, including the 3,000 year old llama trees and stuff, are adapted to what we call the Kona weather system or rainfall pattern. And that's changing, you know, obviously with climate change. Um, how do you think it will affect the ancient forests here? Um, and what could I possibly do to fortify my part of it against those changes? Clay, I'd love for you to take that on. <laughs> yeah, that's a tough one. I mean, a lot of those trees have withstand or withstood drought in the past, but as this climate is changing, uh, it's going to cause stress in some of those places. And, and my worry becomes, um, you know, do we see the limits of where we're able to restore these places and the, our capacity to restore? And so for those that are persisting, we were joking at one point, we did this workshop and you know, we're like, well, we can't water the forest. And actually, some people are actually, we are. You know, so they, some folks are actually looking at using irrigation, especially to support some of those keystone trees in these ecosystems. Um, but again, I think most of what we do as far as folks doing that native ecosystem care is to try to remove the stress from weeds um, and, and try to uh, do what they can again to keep the trees that are there intact. Um, but as that long-term shift happens, it, it, it's going to be difficult. It's going to probably limit our ability to uh, what we can accomplish as far as bringing back some of these forests because they were quite extensive uh, through your neck of the woods. So I'm sorry I don't have like super concrete answers, but it's definitely a challenge. Um, people are kind of seeing that shift as far as what's possible in certain places. Could we see a large-scale change to the kinds of, you know, the kind of forests that we have here in Hawaii given the changes that we're talking about? I was just speaking with um, uh, a very kind of dear man, Leland Miano, who uh, is an artist here, but a longtime kind uh, of conservationist. And he was telling us uh, about the changes that he's seen in his lifetime as far as drying trends uh, and things like that. So I, I think that we will see changes, but I think it's also important to uh, keep in mind that many of the native plants here have pretty extensive capacity to adapt to these dry conditions. Um, we won't 
I don't anticipate it's like going to be this collapse, but what we might see is kind of this shift where, uh, as Chip said in the beginning, you're going to have conditions that are more um, would favor invasive species, especially some of these really drought hardy grasses moving in. And so, again, it's going to be that intense land care, whatever you want to define that restoration, uh, watershed work where people are up there caring and tending for these places so that they can persist. Peter is on the line now from Ha'iku on Maui. Peter, welcome to the conversation. Uh, Tell us your comment this morning. Yes, one thing that hasn't been discussed yet in terms of climate change is the effect when um, we can't control the activity on the big island with Kilauea or Mauna Loa or uh, going off, but the uh, extent of VOG because of the decrease in trade winds I know Maui is kind of the first impacted island, but it can go beyond here. And it's um, just in recent years, activity seems to be more intense than ever before in terms of VOG. Um, and that's, to me, one of the uh, downfalls of climate change is, or, or decrease of trade winds and lack of trade winds is air gets harder to breathe and the air quality gets pretty bad. Thank you so much for your call, Peter. Chip, if you would weigh in on that, you talked about fewer trade wind days and then what we were seeing in California, basically the atmosphere slowing down, if you will. Is that what's causing Peter to feel the effects when uh, when he experiences that fog on Maui? Yeah, Peter's bringing up a really good point. Um, I have a family member who's very sensitive to fog, And, you know, long before we get any official fog warnings here on Oahu or we even are told... Uh, that the winds are changing to the south, my family member lets me know. Um, and so this uh, air quality issue is a, is a serious issue, uh, a serious health issue for a lot of people here in Hawaii. And uh, I think Peter's making a very valid point. As the trades uh, decrease, not only their average speed, but the days in which we have trade winds. And just sidebar, we just went through an entire month with no trade winds. January had zero trade winds. Um, again, another example of sort of extreme uh, versions of of uh, weather that we had taken otherwise to be normal. Uh, Peter's making a good point that we need to worry about this and adapt to this uh, air quality issue. Uh, an entire month without trade winds, it, it, that seems exceptional mm-hmm. has that happened before well i don't i i don't know the answer to that question but i do know that january had very strong south winds and southwest winds um yesterday i was hearing about how the beaches in south kihei and wailea uh, have disappeared and erosion has cut back almost to the road in some places kamaole one beach uh has lost most of its sand and erosion has cut back several feet towards the road there. So um, not only no trade winds, but we had strong winds from a direction that uh, were unusual for such a prolonged period of time. Yeah, and so Matt, when we're looking at all of this and figuring out how to manage this, I don't know that we could water the forest or turn the wind on. Uh, you know, you talked about some of the things that we can do when it comes to fire and of course, in, uh, limiting our own impact uh, on the environment using less, uh, you know, decreasing our carbon footprint, if you will. What are some other low-hanging fruit when we're approaching this? Before getting to that, I definitely want to emphasize the caller's comments that climate change also can have cascading impacts, and a lot of those are human health impacts. Um, The spread of of diseases, we have different indicators of even um, uh, insects and, and invasives creeping up in higher elevation, impacting our native flora and fauna. All of these things are related um, and it's helpful to understand. And I think, again, to the point before of sharing and empowering with information, the more that we hear from others that have an aspect of climate, um, the broader that awareness and the realization of a, a constituency and a coalition to take action, I think is really, really important. And again, that's why we're excited to come forth with this Climate Ready Wahoo adaptation strategy that we believe validates about two and a half years of input while um, also advancing existing community plans. Um, specifically around the different hazards, again, we, we try to break it down. Some of them are event-based. Some of them are baseline changes. Chip mentioned heat and sea level rise. Those are those are things that will continue to 
change into the future. So where are those projections near, near mid and long term? Um, how do we get ahead of some of those issues? We're fortunate that um, you know we're maybe not as sea level rise impacted yet as a place like Southeast Florida. We're seeing a lot of examples of how to come to grips with what might need to be done, how to finance those kinds of things. This will be difficult work moving forward, but oftentimes the benefits come after the costs. So the more that we can align a commitment to taking an action, and we might need to learn from those actions, it's, it's, it, it's gonna be very difficult. Uh, and we think it's important to be clear-eyed, open, and honest about that, because the systems, the coordination, how we invest in places was for a, a different way of doing business and, and partnering with private development, but now we have to find ways to come together with doing shared investments in infrastructure. You know, Chip, whenever we I have the opportunity to interview you on this, I, I always feel like, you know, I want to know, are we too late? Right? When we look at the the sea level projections, I think it's three feet by the end of the century, which is four feet. Okay, he's holding up four fingers now. Four feet by the end of the century, which is really not that far away. Um, and so when we when we look at that and the it, it just feels like it's almost too much, and, and, and are we too late? No, we're not too late, uh, because we have children, and they're going to have children, and we are in the um, unique, and I would say uh, powerful position to determine the world that they inherit. We are making great progress on the renewable energy transition globally. Um, last year, electric vehicle sales grew by 55%. 10 million electric vehicles were sold last year. Renewable energy around the world grew by 50%. This is the highest in two decades. Investment in clean energy last year increased 17%. Um, but unfortunately, even with these uh, amazing successes, governments are still investing in fossil fuels. And while we need to decrease our uh, greenhouse gas emissions by 43% by the end of this decade, we're currently on track to only decrease them by 2% by the end of this decade. So, um, this is a global uh, crisis. Um, the word is out. Everybody knows about it. Uh, all the governments are aware. All the governments have made pledges to um, meet uh, net zero energy plans eventually. But there's a difference between their promises and pledges and what they're actually investing in. And unfortunately, governments around the world are still investing in fossil fuels. I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole, but uh, you ask, is it too late? No, it's never too late. Every tenth of a degree matters and is a new opportunity to stop the warming uh, in the future. And as Matt will tell you, this is uh, a chance to create a cleaner, greener, healthier, and more affordable world because clean energy uh, brings with it all these amazing co-benefits. and. Um, Hawaii is in a position where we are large enough that it's hard to make this transition, but we're small enough that we actually can accomplish it. And we can show the world what it looks like to transition into a resilient, clean uh, community. And uh, by doing that, help save ourselves. Can we ask you uh, briefly about ecological grief? Because I think that Matt also sort of referenced that as well, that, that you can feel really overwhelmed by this, and so you try to break it down into bite-sized pieces. But it is hard for some folks, myself included, to not feel very overwhelmed by this. Well, it is characterized as grief, and it's actually uh, an official psychosis that uh, um, uh, characterized by climate scientists who study this problem. They're the first ones who undergo this grief. And I've, I've, I've been uh, experiencing this grief myself. But we all experience grief. We all lose loved ones. We all lose landscapes. We all, you know, have moved away from home or, or experience grief in different ways. Um, and the solution to grief is time and to stay active. By engaging in action, there's optimism there. I'm not going to trot out the, world, the word hope, 
um, because that implies that someone else is going to take care of the problem for you. But there's action that we can all take in uh, the problem of climate change, personal action and community action, and that action carries with it optimism and that and time are the solution to grief. We have just a few minutes left, so I want to give each of you an opportunity for a final thought this morning. And Clay, I'll start with you, the action that we need to take right now. Sure. I think we have to get back to the fact that a lot of these problems that we're dealing with locally have local solutions, but that they're not really going to come down to us as individuals, each to sort of change our behavior. I think it's more about how we see, um, you know, us as a society here in Hawaii, so that's through our state and, and county governments is like pushing for these policies that will actually allow us to farm, allow us to transform these landscapes. There's so many solutions that people have been talking about um, with respect to managing resources, making water uh, available, food more abundant. Um, at the local level, these visions are kind of emerge through different struggles, but they have uh, solutions within them to deal with fire, to deal with flooding. Uh, and really what it comes back to, like Matt's comments earlier, is, is public health, community health, right? And so if we're taking these actions that really support our communities, the people in those communities and, and the services that we can provide them, I think that's really what resilience is about. Matt? Yeah, I'll just make one last plug. Again, we, we believe we've, through deep community engagement and working with experts like Chip and others and a stakeholder advisory group, have uh, an opportunity to move forward with Climate Ready Oahu. It is it, the city's first ever adaptation strategy. It is now at city council. It's resolution 24-16 being first heard at the Housing Sustainability and Health Committee this Wednesday afternoon. Uh, taking action also includes sharing voice and hopefully by supporting it and then once adopted through the end of this month, that also allows people to point back to it and hold government accountable, hold community accountable for the things that we know where we were honest about the risks, ways to address those risks. And we find that really empowering. And we've got about a minute left. So Dr. Fletcher, I'll let you have the last word. Oh my goodness. Well, um, the last word is that uh, this is the challenge of a generation. Um, Hawaii has the cultural underpinning of aloha aina and aloha for one another, where we will um, overcome this problem. I, I, would, I would rather be in Hawaii than any place else in the world in, uh, as, I, as I look out across the, the future landscape of climate change. I think we are an empowered community that has the, the history, the culture, and the commitment. We all love Hawaii. We're all here because we love this place um, to overcome these problems in a way that our children and grandchildren uh, will thank us for. And, and that's a wonderful way to leave our discussion this morning. We want to thank our guest, Dr. Chip Fletcher, Interim Dean of the School of Ocean, School of Earth Science, Oceans and Technology at UH Manoa, Dr. Clay Trowernick, Professor at UH Manoa, specializing in wildland fire and ecosystem care, and Matthew Gonzer, Chief Resilience Officer and Executive Director at the Office of Climate Change, Sustainability, and Resiliency for the City and County of Honolulu. We, of course, thank you, the listeners, for joining us on today's show. Have a to share about what you heard today, call our talkback line at 808-792-8217. You can also send us an email at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. If you'd like to listen back to today's show, check out the conversation podcast at hawaiipublicradio.org or on Spotify, on Apple, or on Android, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Yenji Denise. Catherine Cruz is back tomorrow. Join her for more of The Conversation. <laughs>